Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapinian. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us once again. Remember, you can always catch the Bridge Builder Show every week on the radio, online, on your favorite podcast app. And now you can also catch us on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Minnesota Catholic Conference. And if you ever miss an episode, they're always archived on our website. That's mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, who are you speaking with this week? We're going to be joined by Professor R.J. Snell. He recently wrote a piece in the public discourse entitled Lost in Chaos, the Danger of Total Politics. Chaos, yeah, that. That pretty much describes politics these days. Well, remember everyone who's watching or listening, send us your ideas. You can email me. The address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you can just leave us a comment on the YouTube channel, on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter. I will be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined by Professor R.J. Snell. He is Editor-in-Chief of Public Diff's Discourse and Director of the Center on the University and Intellectual Life at the Witherspoon Institute. Previously, he was for many years Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Philosophy Program at Eastern University and the Templeton Honors College, where he founded and directed the Agra Institute for Civic Virtue and the Common Good. He has a Master's in Philosophy at Boston College and a PhD in Philosophy from Marquette University. His research interests include the liberal arts, ethics, natural law theory, Aquinas, and the Catholic intellectual tradition. We wanted to speak with him about his recent article, The Danger of Total Politics. Dr. Snell, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Oh, thanks so much. Very good to be with you, and uh, good morning, or whatever time it is, uh, for all your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. All over the all over the map on the timing when people will hear this, but uh, great to be with you. Uh, tell us about your interest in political philosophy to begin with. Just say a little bit about your scholarly interests and why uh, political philosophy is uh, a focus of yours. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I'm a philosopher by training, uh, and I, get, I got into philosophy. I wanted to study with Peter Kreeft at Boston College. Uh, at the time, I was a young Baptist. I didn't know much about the, the Catholic social tradition or Catholic philosophy, but I had read a bunch of texts by Peter Kreeft, and I thought, well, he seems like a wise man. I have things to learn from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he introduced me to Thomas Aquinas for the first time, and, and indeed, really, to philosophy. Uh, so I didn't have any great plan of, go- of uh, scholarly enterprise. I just kept reading. And I really wasn't interested in political philosophy all that much. I was doing Aquinas and as I got a little older, had children, uh, the concerns about social life and ethics in public became more uh, of a concern for me, which of course takes you into political reflections and, and what's going on or not going on in our common life. So a lot of it was just an attempt to, to think about how to live well and eventually how to live in keeping with the thinking of the church as applied to you know, what we see going on around us and our common concerns. It's really fascinating how uh, the family and family life makes one think more broadly about the broader family, the, the broader community, and that connection between fam- what's going on in the family and family politics and politics more generally. So it, it, the way in which that st- the family stimulates reflection about living well, the common good, and all these big topics. Yeah, that's for, that's for sure. Your recent article was titled The Danger of Total Politics, and I want to dig into that, but let's start with defining our terms. What is politics? 
Well, isn't that a great question? You know, the uh, the simplest terms are always the hardest ones. Yeah, that was kind of a loaded question. Yeah, that's right. You know, here's the trick I won't know the answer to, actually. Well, we think of politics in a very broad sense, in contemporary milieu, to mean almost anything where you have more than one person involved, right? So we have a phrase in contemporary language, the personal is the political. And so people are involved, like everything they do is political, every Facebook post, uh, everything that they eat, you know, that's, that's part of my concern in, in this essay. When I think of politics, though, more specifically, I think of it as the coordinated action, hopefully governed or normatively governed by reason under law, for the pursuit of the good of the community to, w- to which that do we belong in that particular political enterprise. Now that can happen at the local level, state level, national level, international level, but it's a series of coordinated actions under law, we hope, uh, to attain some good. So when we talk about politics becoming total or totalizing, what, what's, what happens then when, that, t- when that's, that limited task of uh, human endeavor gets outside of its normal scope? Well, one of the claims that I'm, I'm considering in this particular essay is my own frustration when I see how intense what should be ordinary political discussions have become. There's a sense that everything seems to be a moral absolute. You and I are not allowed to disagree. You know, I can think of the, the heated conversations that happened around the Thanksgiving table between my dad and my uncle. And you could tell they both thought of each other as, you know, imprudent and nonsensical but they didn't think of each other as wicked because they disagreed, where at the moment it feels like our opponents think of us as wicked and we're to think of them as wicked. When we disagree about ordinary policy disputes that that good people can simply think differently about. You have an idea, you think it would lead to better schooling, I disagree. That can just be a matter of ordinary disagreement. Maybe we're both wrong a bit, maybe we're both right a little bit. Now, clearly not everything is like that. There are moral absolutes. There are things that we may not do. There are things we may not cooperate in, but that's not everything. And so it feels at the moment that politics, that the intensity is ratcheted up, that the moral claims are too intense and that everything is political, right? The, the, The blob of political concern has swamped every aspect of life. And you're not permitted to have some things be merely private, merely personal, or just a matter of indifference. You know, it's my business, not yours. Let's let's stay out of the political realm here. It's almost as though every political policy debate or discussion uh, is a battle over good and evil, when in fact, it doesn't need to be that at all. How did we get here? How did we get to this point where things have become so contentious, even on ordinary matters of yeah, what we normally call prudence, you know, how best, for example, to educate our children or what school system works best for them, for example, or which, what's the best way to pave Highway 14, you know, asphalt or concrete? No, I, I, that's, those are great examples, right? So I homeschool my children. It works for us. I make no moral demands that other people must do that, right? They have to decide what works for them and their families. That's a, that's a great example. You know, I don't want to suggest that there's merely one cause of how, how we get to this situation. Life's more complicated than that. But the thread that I'm exploring in this particular essay is a sense of how when we lose as a, as a culture, as a community, when we lose sense of a transcendent source, God, who's in a sense beyond the authority of politics and who say is more final than the authority of politics, such that politics is neither final nor, nor, nor all-encompassing. When we lose that sense, it's very difficult for human beings 
to not view themselves simply as kind of like desiring animals where every so interaction really is a demand or claim of power, right? So if we're just competing animals, nothing more, we're not souls, we're not under the authority of God, we don't have a supernatural vocation, we are uh, in that sort of unpleasant phrase, just meet robots, right? Hardware with software, which is seeking our own fulfillment. We're going to, or I think we're, it's all but inevitable that we're going to view things through the lens of power, where everything will become competition, where everything will be viewed as a zero sum game. Uh, so you and I are going to be opponents or we're going to be common uh, belligerents against our antagonists as opposed to cooperative or prudential. Everything will be about power is what I'm speculating in, in this particular essay. I, I know there's more to it. There's historical accident sure. and social media and, and all of that. But I think that's at least part of what we're seeing. So one might say then, without a sense of the transcendent, without the pursuit of truth, without a shared sense of the good, politics then devolves into a power struggle. Yeah, that's right. So if you look at some of the, the social data about collapse of belief in, in the West and in, in the United States in particular, it's really quite remarkable. Uh, you can see the charts of uh, you know, the greatest generation, faith staying fairly constant, boomer generation it going down, uh, my own generation, the Xers, it goes up just a little bit over the last 10 years. But then you look at those generations younger than me and religious affiliation, you know, formal affiliation, belong to the Catholic Church, I identify as an Orthodox Jew, what have you, let alone just belief in God, just plummets precipitously. And at the same time, and again, correlation doesn't mean causation necessarily, at the same time, we are seeing politics become all-encompassing vitriolic and furious. Now, some of that seems to me that there's a, a, a rampant reductionism in our society. We are nothing but bodies. We are nothing but brains. We are nothing but the desire for survival. It's going to be a clash of will and a clash of power as opposed to a demand of reason, let alone a sense that there's a supernatural vocation, which doesn't diminish or negate politics, but does mean that politics is not first. It's not the most important thing. It's important, but there's something more important than politics. And it's the state of my soul and uh, my own concern for the state of your soul. We're speaking with Dr. R.J. Snell. He is editor-in-chief of the online journal, The Public Discourse, an indispensable resource uh, for thought and reflection on uh, public life today. He's also the director of the Center on the University and Intellectual Life at the Witherspoon Institute. And we're speaking with him about his recent article, The Danger of Total Politics. Uh, Professor Snell, you go as far in the article as to say the political life today has is almost uh, become somewhat of an, an idolatrous activity. Uh, did, let's dive into that a little bit. Well, yeah. So what's an idol? I mean, an idol in one way, of course, is a, is a false god or claims some kind of false authority that it doesn't possess. But an idol is also, and I think this is important, um, generally some sort of mirror back on the idolater. Right In idolatry, fundamentally, it is we, or me, who has created the idol and bestowed authority upon it. And so the authority is really a kind of mirroring back of my own desires. Whereas the all-powerful God is not created because God mirrors back my desires. He says, thou shall and thou shalt not, whether I want him to or not sometimes, right? He makes demands upon me, a man of unclean lips sort of thing. When politics becomes a projection of my own will, 
or merely a projection of my own desires. And then I create false moral absolutes or total claims about politics. That seems to look an awful lot like idolatry, a false authority, which mirrors my own desires and which in the end diminishes my dignity in some way. Idolatry is always a diminishing of our dignity, right? It's always false worship always decreases us and is used to control and manipulate others. That sounds a lot like idolatry to me. And, you know, thinking about identity politics in terms of idolatry, we, we put these sort of uh, identities on pedestals and make them a sort of totalizing framework by which to think about politics. And it often seems really dehumanizing to finding people by race, gender, class, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see identity politics as being in part of that idolatrous politics that you're discussing? Yeah, we live in fascinating times, don't we? Like if we didn't have to live in our times, it'd be fascinating case study to watch. It'd be like watching a really entertaining movie. Living in the times with children, well, not so fascinating. You know, it's funny, my, my grandmother was a, a very simple, uneducated woman of real good sense and care. She, I mean, she's passed away now. She would be shocked if, the, if she learned that all the moral lessons she passed on to me which were judge people by their actions, not by their color, not by their caste, not by their uh, economic status. She'd be shocked to learn that you're precisely to evaluate people based upon their color, their caste, their creed. Now, when we give particular privilege to some, particular voice to some, they become an authority based on their status, right? Based on their color or creed. There's a lot of idolatry in, in that because that's a false claim of authority. You think about the, the abortion debates. Uh, I was you know, scrolling through my news feed this morning and I saw that the claim, which is made often, that in the abortion debates, you know, if, you, if you're not a woman, you don't have a say in this. There's, you have, you're, you should, should just be silent. Or we see on college campuses claims that if you're of a particular racial group, you should be silent. You are not allowed to speak. Well, that's a claim of false authority. And it's the elevation of that authority beyond its proper means and it clearly is redounding to the impulses, I think, of self-worship or self-aggrandizement. That's idolatry, pure and simple. And of course, it's tearing us apart. It's tearing our ability to converse apart. It's tearing our ability to just to tolerate each other, let alone view each other as common citizens with the, the normal bonds of affection with, within a polis, within a community. Uh, it's, it's really just a terrible moment politically, in part because of identity politics, for sure. And the phenomenon is not necessarily confined to one side of the political spectrum or the other. You note in the article that it's a, this is a danger and a phenomenon on both left and right. What are some, I think, maybe one or two concrete manifestations you're seeing in, from that perspective? Well, you, it's easy it's easy to sort of see it on the left. One just thinks of woke culture or cancel culture on campus. That, that's very mm -hmm. easy to see where someone is canceled, not allowed to speak because he, he has the wrong view on X, Y, or Z, right? Yeah. Race or gender or abortion or sexuality or what have you. That's easy to see. I'm politically a conservative. So it's easy for me to sort of look at the left and think, oh, oh there they are. But mm -hmm. when I look a lot of my, my own fellow conservatives, I see similar things where there's a sense of, well, if you're not with us, you're against us when it comes to this politics. Or even worse, we don't need to play by the rules anymore. The point is to win. Now, elections matter. In politics, everyone wants their side to win. 
that's just politics. That's ordinary Democratic Republican politics. Yeah, I want my guys to win. I want their guys to lose because I think I'm right and I think they're wrong. So does everyone. That's normal. That's why we have elections and debates and so on. The idea that winning is more important than responding to human dignity or following the law or using reason, that seems a lot like identity politics or tribalism. You know, my tribe wins, your tribe loses, and we don't need to follow out the rules of engagement. I'm seeing that on the right as well, you know, particularly in the, in the sort of online world. Now, whether that's the ordinary world of ordinary people in their towns, I think it's better out there in real reality in real America than it is on Twitter. You know, thank goodness. And yet many of our political elites left and right, power seems to be the name of the game. The point of this is to win. And that's that's not good. You describe kind of woke culture, which might be phrased progressive dogmatism. It has its own sacraments, liturgies, excommunications, uh, all sorts of things of this nature that I think for some on the other side of the equation, they might say that uh, dogmatism can't be fought with liberalism and playing by the rules, as you described it, it needs to be fought with dogmatism, yeah. so to speak. And some of these thinkers argue that ultimately all political questions come down to theological questions. It's yeah. theology all the way down. Yeah. What do you think of those sorts of claims? Is that, uh, you know, you make the point that philosophy is prior to politics, theology is prior to philosophy, is the queen of the sciences, but you know, how would you respond to those sorts of claims that you can't meet, you can't meet liberal dogmatism with, with right-wing liberalism, for example, you need a better story. You need your own set of dogmas to combat false dogmas. And that's the only way the right can win is with deeper truths. I don't think it's false that we should respond to the dogmatism of the contemporary progressive movement by being non-theological. I think that it's a theological dispute at the end of the day. What's authority? What's to be worshipped? Who are the heretics? Who do we excommunicate? And so on. My own theological sense, though, is that God has created us to be free. God has endowed us with reason. The natural law that's been taught by the church or proclaimed by the church uh, throughout the history of the church has not been evacuated. The human heart and the human mind is not destroyed. And so God has endowed us with reason. Because we each and every one of us have reason, we are fundamentally responsible to search for the truth. If you think of the documents of, of Vatican II about religious freedom, there is a responsibility for each of us to follow conscience and to seek the truth of God and to seek to live in harmony with the truth of God as we understand it. And it is only in that free search that we're actually keeping with, with the image of God or the dignity of God. That would be one. The second would be, I still really do believe in the existence and work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is living and active, able to sanctify, able to redeem, able to repair. And so I have a whole lot of faith in creation, meaning here the reason which is endowed in us by nature, and in grace that the Holy Spirit is at work. And if we trust in the Holy Spirit and we trust in, in the goodness of creation, it's going to take some time. We need to have patience. But that hope is commended and commanded to us and that we can't despair or give up on hope and that God has given us all that we really need. And so we you know, sort of keep the course and show a better way of reason and grace, not merely playing by the rules of the other side, which has abandoned hope, given into despair and no longer really believes in, in human dignity or human freedom.
That's beautifully stated. Thank you. For but it's that. a real dispute. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. good people are articulating exactly what you just described. Um, good people for good reasons. I disagree with them about some mm -hmm. claims, but they're serious people thinking through a serious matter. But I think in the article, you really, you note and you draw the analogy between the soul and the city. And I think it goes back to this idea that there cannot be order in the polis, despite the laws and structures we create or try to create or attempt to create without first fostering order in the soul. Is that really what, I mean, I think that's that's the, the nub of the argument here is that for there to be order in our society, it first starts with order in the soul and order in the family and that those small communities that make up society. And I certainly wouldn't deny what I take to be true and, and obvious that political order, good laws or, or, or political disorder, bad laws will redound to the good or ill of individuals in their own formation. If you have a rotten political system, you're likely to damage the souls and the families and the individuals of that society. I, I think that's just obviously true. At the same time, no matter how many laws we have, no matter how many edicts and police officers and regulations, if we have a free people who are not also ordered, those laws will serve very little good. That really will be, you know, a bandage on a hemorrhage. That really will be, you know, the finger not in the hole in the dike, but the finger in the hurricane that's coming over us. You know, Plato remarks in the Republic, and I think this is still true, um, that the enlargement of the number of laws in a, in, in a city means that you probably have something wrong with the souls of the citizens of the city. Free people govern themselves through their reason. Free people govern themselves primarily through their associations, family, church, the Lions Club, the Little League game. You know, this is something that the great, great master of, des of description of the American reality, Alexis de Tocqueville, already in the 1830s, right? Amazing, 1830s in democracy in America, notes that in the United States, there is a remarkable spirit of liberty in a way that he can't comprehend. He hasn't seen that back in France, but it's tempered and checked and controlled by what he calls a spirit of religion. And by that, he doesn't just mean there's a church in every corner. He means there is a people who understand a transcendent source of value and they bind themselves to that value, not that they are bound to it by someone else or someone or something else. So yeah, order in the soul, which of course I think comes primarily from the family. If we lose that, we can multiply laws as long as the day is and, and we'll be in trouble. You're right. And there's, if there's not order in the soul, then the expansion of laws just comes to be seen as an arbitrary exercise of power and lacking real authority in the proper sense of that term. So yeah, no legitimacy to the laws or it's exactly. perceived to be no legitimacy of the law. Exactly. So you've described the danger of total politics, uh, a politics of idolatry. It's certainly a phenomenon that we're experiencing in the, the broader political culture. But what do we do? What's the, what's the response here, Professor Snell? How do we push back and how do we change that dynamic? You know, it's, it's funny. I'm, a, I'm trained in philosophy. I spent a lot of my time teaching philosophy. And, you know, the, the old sort of joke about philosophers is, sure, sure, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? Um, you know, I'm, I'm well into middle age now, and it amuses me to see um, how often I will give a theoretical diagnosis of a problem, and then my solution is entirely untheoretical, utterly boring, and mundane. 
in this particular essay near the end, I make reference to the work of Peter Augustine Lawler, who was a, a professor at Berry College in Georgia, a uh, very prolific author who passed away a few years ago, um, too young. When I was a younger man reading Lawler, I always admired him. I thought he was very smart and entertaining. Mm -hmm. But I also thought he was just really boring because his solution was stop theorizing, join Little League, go to church. It's okay. You can be a good person and live in suburban America. You don't have to have a grandiose theory of life. Mm -hmm. You can just be an ordinary person doing ordinary things. You know, I would shake my head and think, oh, Peter, yep. no, no, I need to have more authenticity than that. Yeah. The older I get, the more I think that the solution to all of this starts at the local level, starts at the parish, starts with the family, starts with not screaming at one's uh, uncle over Thanksgiving dinner, but forming real and thick associations. When I look at contemporary America, one of the enormous gaps that I observe, and there's all sorts of social science about this, is participation in the mediating institution. So we have the individual and we have the state. And in between that space should be the Lions Club, the Knights of Columbus, um, the, uh, the Little League, the, the baseball team, the parent-teacher association, which is where free people form their own ability to tolerate and disagree in peace. It's sort of kitschy, but there's a, a painting by Norman Rockwell that was associated with the four freedoms with F mm -hmm. FDR. And one of them is the freedom of speech. And in it, there looks to be a, a, a relatively simple man. He's, he's not dressed as well as the others in the room. Mm -hmm. And he's standing at a town hall meeting, making a statement. Who knows about what? The taxes, the signage, you know, the school board, I don't know. And there are men and women around him who look to be richer than him, perhaps socially superior to him in the sense of having more prestige, but they are listening to him with respect, but he's also not screaming. He's making his point calmly. And I, the older I get, the more I'm moved by that painting of ordinary people governing themselves in local associations. I think that the totalizing of politics would be not cured, not solved overnight. I don't think there's a magic pill here, but would be tempered would be controlled and moderated if, I mean, you see this just at the parish level. The old joke about Catholics, here comes everybody. Somebody on the left, somebody in the right, somebody with a lot of money, somebody with not so much money, this ethnic group, that racial group, all together in a common project, like a family, and sometimes we just put up with each other because we share the common affection of the church and of Christ. And we can do that in non-religious ways uh, you know, at the, at the, the volunteer fire department. I, I'm more and more convinced that Lawler was right. And the spirit of liberty in America requires those kind of associations. It's sort of boring. It's very ordinary. And I think it's where the game is. Agreed. And, and as, as Tocqueville said, uh, local institutions and local politics are that school of democracy, which will, I'll end this discussion though, with a foreboding note, looking yeah. at school board meetings across the country. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> the way and the way they have broken down into complete mayhem and uh, smack of the total politics uh, that you're talking about. So, but it, we can we can live with that dynamic and lament it, or we can do something about it and model civ civic virtue, charity, and, and seeing ourselves and our neighbors as friends to be persuaded, uh, not as enemies to be crushed. This has been a great conversation, Professor Snell. So grateful that you've joined us on the Bridge Builder program today. Yeah. 
Where, where can people go to find out more about um, public discourse and the Witherspoon Institute? Yeah, great, thanks. So the Public Discourse is the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute. Witherspoon is a, a nonprofit research group in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, just across the street from Princeton University, although not affiliated with the university. Uh, you can see that at winst.org, W-I-N-S-T.org. Uh, and the Public Discourse is just thepublicdiscourse.com. Excellent. Outstanding. Those are great essays on the public discourse every morning in your inbox. Professor R.J. Snell, thanks so much uh, for your good work and for joining us in the book room. Appreciate it. And we'll be back again in a moment with our practical tip of the week. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder. Kit, what's this week's practical action item? Yeah, so one thing we're always reiterating here on the Bridge Builder is that people should really get involved in decision-making locally, right in their own communities. And a prime example of that is getting involved with your local school board. We've definitely seen a lot more parents getting involved with the decision-making process, attending school board meetings, especially as you know, there's a lot of decisions being made around COVID protocols. But on top of that, right now, this fall is school board elections. I know around my town, I've been seeing a lot of signs for various candidates who are running for school board. That's on November 2nd here in Minnesota. So make sure to do your homework and then get out and vote. That's all we have time for today. And all of our extended conversations are on our YouTube channel. Thanks so much for joining us on The Bridge Builder this week. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. Uh, more practical tips for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins for Kids of Pinnacle of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed day.